Anytime you can shoot a 12-year-old in less than two seconds, his life did not matter to you. Anytime that you can kneel on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds as he's crying for his mama shows his life did not mean anything to you. Anytime you could shoot a woman while she's sleeping, her life did not matter. Anytime you will shoot a man with his child in the back seat shows that his life, his wife's life, and that child's life does not matter. So when we're saying Black Lives Matter, we're saying Philando mattered. We're saying Tamir mattered. We're saying Trayvon mattered. And Trayvon was murdered by a nobody. And he still got off. So you're showing that Trayvon's life did not matter. He was somebody's child. He was somebody's best friend. He could have grew up and did amazing things for this country. But we'll never know because you snuffed his life out. You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and in corporate media. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Siobhan Torres, a core person for Black Lives Matter New Jersey and network rep for BLM National. Siobhan describes her view of what happened to George Floyd, the hundreds of years of systemic racism that preceded it, and the protests and largely performative responses by companies, government, and the president. Finally, we discuss the differences between acknowledging one's complicity in society's ills and doing something about it. This is part one of a two-part conversation. Enjoy. Hello, Siobhan Torres. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm really glad that you came on to talk with me. Um, Could you please introduce yourself? And can you also talk about how you started to get involved with Black Lives Matter locally and, you know, gradually working your way towards... New Jersey state and also national. Um, well, my name is Siobhan. Um, I've been organizing or an activist for well over 20 years. Um, I didn't look at it as activism. It was just standing up for what was right. Um, I started um, BLM uh, locally when I seen uh, BLM records and I called and kind of was um, pretty much was like, well, how come you're just focused there? And in North Jersey, there's black folks in South Jersey too that need need your help. Why aren't you doing something down here? And it pretty much bared down to them. Why don't you get it started? And that's how I started with doing um, for Brunswick County, and then eventually worked with um, BLM New Jersey, and then I started doing national work um, toward the inauguration of uh, President Trump. And from there, I've been traveling to different uh, con- uh, excuse me, countries, different uh, cities, different <laughs> states, um, doing BLM work. Um, I only also do work with other local organizations, the grassroots ones, not just BLM, but that's where my main focus was. And what years around did that start? Um, I believe it was, say, around... T- about six years ago, maybe about 2014, 2015, I started kind of really ramping up my activist work. What triggered you to start to want to be involved with that? Um, My family, my family, I come from a long line of freedom fighters. Um, My aunt and my great grandmother were responsible for the Mount Laurel decision, which um, in New Jersey, which states that every city has to put in affordable housing. Um, I had a great uncle that was a Tuskegee Airman. So pretty much it was in my blood. And um, it was almost like I'm compelled to fight for what's right, even if it's not for me specifically. 
Can you can you talk a little bit more about the uh, Mount Laurel decision? Um, the Mount Laurel decision, which is still um, can be problematic, it was um, a legislature passed in New Jersey where each um, city has to put in some form of affordable housing in state each law. city. This is state law now. Excuse me. Yes. Um, unfortunately, there's loopholes where um, a lot of cities have been putting in a senior center, senior housing, which technically is considered affordable housing instead of putting family housing up for lower income, poor black and brown and marginalized people. And it's still to this day, it's still a fight just to get cities to put up affordable housing, even with justification underway. That's interesting. I actually live, I was live streaming some um, Morristown uh, council meetings where that was the topic of discussion. Uh, Okay. So the center of this topic, the the topic of this conversation is centering around George Floyd. Um, But obviously he's not the first. So can you, could you talk about before we get into George Floyd, can you talk about what has led up to him? The, what you know, with your, to, I'm sorry. What is that? Up to, I mean, I mean the the police violence that you have experienced as part of Black Lives Matter before George Floyd. Um, as far as state, uh, I call it state state sanctioned violence against Black and Brown people. This has been going on long way before George Floyd. This um, stems from slavery. Um, and a lot of people want to talk about, oh, slavery is so long ago and they need to get over it, which is not really true because my great-great-grandfather was a slave. Um, my great-uncle that was a Tuskegee Airman, his mother came from slavery, uh, was born into slavery. And the cops actually derived from slave trolls that would go and catch runaway slaves and bring them back. And once the Emancipation Proclamation happened where we were no longer slaves, they wanted to keep a way of maintaining order and control over black people. That's where how the police was formed. Um, and it's always been an act of violence toward black and brown folks and toward marginalized people. Um, it didn't start with George Floyd. It's not going to end with George Floyd. Um, two days before George Floyd um, was murdered, there was a murder here in Bass River. There's also those set in Jer- that was in Jersey alone. Um, but what people fail to realize is that the, a lot of the people that are seen as police officers, they have been infiltrated by white supremacists. And if people have implicit bias because this is a white supremacist country, they're groomed, you could say, in white supremacy. So they have these notions and they're trained to think as our black skin as a weapon. So even if you can have the most docile black person ever walk across, the moment they see that black skin, they're automatically deemed a threat. And then automatically they're in fear for life, which justifies in their eyes the murder of a, of a human life. Um, it's, it goes from there and then from, you know, from, cause, excuse me, between the end of slavery and reconstruction, there was a point where, um, black people were actually allowed to be federal marshals like Bass Reeves and stuff. But after Jim Crow, which of course, um, came from white supremacy as well, which kind of curtailed that and pretty much pushed, uh, took away land that black folks owned, which created generational poverty. I'm kind of, I'm off track a little bit. Um, but as far as with the police, it's always been a tension between police and black folks. And black people have been saying this for hundreds of years about our mistreatment and how we're being brutalized and how we're being murdered. And it's only recently that other people are actually starting to see it. And you still... Even with the video, you still people have people trying to justify their murders, calling, kind of pulling into the fact that, oh well, they must have had they had a criminal past, or 
um, they did something they had no business doing only if they complied. But we've seen all these instances. Philando Castile complied. He died. And regardless if they had a criminal history, at that moment, it was supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And come to find out, George wasn't even aware about the uh, fraudulent $20 bill, which actually ended up, I believe, wasn't false. It was a real $20 bill. But the thing is, that should not count as a death sentence for George. Um, there's Marshall Zamore here in Jersey was murdered by state police officers off the off the chance that they smelled marijuana. A smell mm. should not warrant somebody's death sentence. Brianna Taylor was sleep in her bed. So now it's pretty much you can't even sleep in your own home without worrying about being murdered by the police. You said something that I had not heard before. Police was actually the police force. So the, the police as an institution were formed in Reconstruction. Yes, the um, it started off as the slave catchers. They were um, the slave patrol. They were sent to catch off uh, the runaway slaves and bring them back to the plantations. After emancipation and during Reconstruction, these slave patrols turned into police officers which we know of today, the little star on the badge and everything else. It started off from catching slaves. And because they already had that institution set in place, uh, it's automatically, I don't see why anybody can see how they wouldn't mistreat black and brown folks. Well, this is totally naive. And I don't know if you can answer this, but I'm very surprised to hear that. Like what was policing, Setting aside slavery, what was policing before Reconstruction? The policing wasn't as an institution. Like they might have had a had a sheriff, and were they um the town, and they went to the courts. It's like um by themselves. It wasn't like a force or multiple people as you see the police force today. Um. Because um, a lot of it was kind of like within each town. Because really, the police force basically ended, it came around, around the time of the Civil War. Before then, it was more of a community policing, so to speak. Hmm. So, so the you know, now I have a question that I, that I know you probably can't answer. But now I'm like wondering, like these sheriffs before... Before Reconstruction, were they how were they like sort of sanctioned by the government to be you know like I, I just wonder what the form of that was beforehand. But no, I never heard that police was act the, the institution of police was formed in Reconstruction. That's yeah, that's right after the Civil surprising. War. Yes, yeah, very surprising. And actually, you know, so you said that you know actual slavery ended and then de facto slavery can began. So they wanted to keep it going as much as possible without mm-hmm. it being official. So 13th amendment so that you could basically have slaves because you changed the laws. So more black people would go into jail and then you could hire those effective slaves to do work. You know, that's all good. Anna, you had the Burger King. I'll tell daddy to get you something. Okay. You, if you need to deal with, if you need to take a moment, go go for it. All right, let me just take a second to uh, get her ready. Yeah, yeah, uh, go for it. More than two minutes. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> All right. Where's Daddy? Hey. Hey, how are you doing? Good, okay. Okay. All right, you said that I, I never heard before that police were formed in Reconstruction. I find mm-hmm. that fascinating. So uh, the Civil War ended and slavery became illegal, officially illegal. Yeah. And quote then unquote. they, quote unquote, it became officially illegal, but, but then they did many, many things to make it continue as much as possible in all but name. So de facto slavery as opposed to actual slavery. And one of those things was now, I didn't know this, but one of those things was creating the police as an Uh, institution. 
also, but within the Thirteenth Amendment itself, it said slavery was illegal unless um, convicted of a crime. And right. from there, that's where you had like the big pig clause and trumped up charges and the loitering. What was the first laws you uh, said? The pig clause. The pig clause. Oh, C L A U S E. Okay, no, I'm not familiar with that. What is that? Also, uh, basically, uh, um, if they had like a certain amount of, um, it's kind of like uh, trans, it's like transient laws, because okay. now you have this whole group of people free from slavery, no money, no lands, nothing. So say like they're they went into town and they're in a particular spot for more than an hour, they can get arrested. And huh. they could be committed to doing hard labor. Then um, that's where they had. They also had things where, like, if they were stealing farm, uh, farm animals, mm-hmm. and they basically any type of trivial misdemeanors or trivial offenses, they were treated mm-hmm. as felonies and given harsher sentences as if, if they were black. Right. So they were forced into desperation. They did desperate things to survive. And then they were, those desperate things were made into crimes. And so they lowered, they lowered the definition of crime so that black people would coincidentally commit more now, what were now called crimes. Then they were put into jails. And I understand that profit for profit prisons also exploded around reconstruction as well. So that's like the whole circle. So they would hire they would hire those criminals. Basically, land, former slave owners would go to jails, for-profit jails, and hire out their crim, their criminals, their their prisoners, mm-hmm. for for like a dollar, you know, whatever, incredibly cheap labor. Yes, and, um, and which still goes on to this day. Um, we still have for-profit prisons, of course. And to say there's something they had called was called like the black codes, where basically we're replacing um, the slave codes. And um, okay. other states, and also in the northern states, when people think of slavery, they tend to think of it being down south by, under the Mason-Dixon line, where in actuality, slavery was throughout 13 colonies. Um, New Jersey itself was the, actually the last state to abolish slavery in the north. And right after, they passed a law saying that if they were uh, former slaves, they could not enter or leave New Jersey. If they left New Jersey, they couldn't come back. Any new black people couldn't come in, which means if your family was sold off to Delaware, there was no way you can go get your family. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's there's a, many ways. And actually the one – so and then more recently is the war on drugs. Yes. War on drugs. Uh, but there was actually something that I that I came across uh, as I was studying this, I interviewed uh, an author of a book called Racial Taxation, mm-hmm. um, which was so enlightening. And the biggest thing in her book was that at Reconstruction, public schools started to be funded by property taxes. Mm-hmm. That was another enormous – actually, I mean, that's <laughs> just as enormous because because – Rich white people have all the land, so naturally they pay the most property taxes. Mm-hmm. So they they shut minorities disadvantaged out of uh, you know voting and and school boards and uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, going into a court and testifying, testifying, being on juries. Mm-hmm. So they they kept disadvantaged away from the levers of power. Which means they couldn't change that system, so they couldn't change, for example, like a more disadvantaged neighborhood might not have as much property, so they wanted to increase the percentage that they paid in property taxes to try and you know, get a little closer in contributing more money for their school facilities. But they couldn't even get into, the, into power in order to even make those kinds of decisions. See, that's, so, also, that's also by design, because right after slavery, there were free blacks that owned um, land. And with the era of Jim Crow, these lands were taken from them and given to white people. So in essence, they were essentially creating generational poverty. 
caste system, per, permanent caste systems. That's what it was. Per, it is. It still is permanent caste systems. So because education, uh, and not to mention property taxes that were paid, you know, so white people, rich white people would say, oh, I pay the most in taxes. They don't pay much, They don't pay any in taxes. So mm-hmm. we deserve better facilities, education facilities, which means that the disadvantaged communities don't have education, which is the primary tool for a better job, which is the primary tool for gaining more wealth and power. So it's a permanent, it's a permanent cycle that they used. But also, property taxes paid by disadvantaged communities were often just stolen, just brazenly stolen. It was by, stolen by, and it was funneled into militarizing the police. Which okay, was, I didn't know that part of it, but it was stolen and, and, and funneled into the richer school districts mm-hmm. is how I understood it. But I'm sure that that's part of it as well. So there was just all these different things that, that once slavery ended for real – that it was still perpetuated, and it's and it's um, uh, the courts have supported um, mm-hmm. like education is not a fundamental right anymore. Yes, um, that that was what inspired this book was the Supreme Court case that mm-hmm. stopped that. Um, so anyway, um, okay, I, I'd like to go on to. Could you summarize? Uh, could you give us a basic summary from your point of view of what happened to George Floyd? simplest form was he was murdered in cold blood by four officers not just the one that was on his neck but the three other officers that were present and the sheer callousness of it and um, the fact that they showed no empathy you see they have no remorse shows a lot about who is being attracted into this institution, which is known as um, police. There's a lot of things that need to be deconstructed. I'm all for abolishing the police and community policing. But for these type of people, for I'm not going to say their names because I'm not going to give them any more um, infamy than they deserve. But regardless of what happened prior George Floyd's priors or whatever, what have you, did not equate to the taking of his life. And the way that he was taking his, his life was taken was in an inhumane, brutal, barbaric manner. This man had his knee on his neck as this man's life was slipping away. And he had the look of sheer callousness. He did not care. And the fact that they were standing around and not saying anything is because they knew they would get off on it. They believed they were above the law. And that is something that has to be dealt with immediately. Because now you have these police officers that's going around. And even as the world is watching right now, we're still seeing black black bodies in the street by the hands of the police. We're still seeing um, white nationalists terrorizing black folks and nothing's being done what happened with george floyd was unfortunate but and the most unfortunate part of it is this is not this is not a standalone case this is something that has been done repeatedly since we came to this country and after 400 years something that has to be done. Something has to change within it. And at this point, it's like, it almost seems hopeless because a lot of people want to do good gestures and goodwill. And like, I support Black Lives Matter and all this, that. But how have you actively done it? How have you actively, that you just putting up a hashtag is not doing the work. And not it's not just George Floyd. Is there's countless others have died in the way George Floyd has died that doesn't get that media attention. And what have people been doing locally? And how they've been supporting the black the black community locally, not just when it's um, trending on Twitter and not when it's something to be talked about on MSNBC. This is you need to all that has to be addressed as well. But to be honest. I'm tired 
of seeing videos like George Floyd's. At this point, it's trauma porn. Hmm. And it, it gives a sense of hopelessness. And that should be the last thing you want to do because when somebody is at the point of hopelessness where they feel they have nothing to lose, that's when all hell's going to break loose. Uh, did you know or – well, first of all, I think I would bet money that these cops did not know George Floyd's priors until after he was dead. That's my guess. Um, I'm not sure if they knew. Uh, I have to double check because I know one of them might have had a run-in prior, so they're oh. aware of George Floyd. But regardless, yeah, regardless, it doesn't matter. Did you know that? Did you know that the cop, the cop that did kill him, that had his knee on his neck, has killed others? I don't know if they were black or not, but has killed what? other citizens in yes. Minnesota. And regarding Amy Klobuchar as a, a state attorney yes. general, yes, yeah, can you? As far as I was aware, I believe he killed, uh, I'm not sure, one or two, but he had 18 other prior reports against him. And as far as Amy Klobuchar, it's, uh, she refuses to prosecute. And that is an, also an issue as far as with getting justice for the families when it comes to police, because you have the police unions that makes it hard to prosecute. And then you have like prosecutors that work hand in hand with police. They don't want to do this. So a lot at the end of the day, the families don't get justice. And to be clear, Amy Klobuchar, it was not just this officer. It was, I think it, I think dozens of officers that she chose to not press charges on that had killed Minnesota residents during her during her tenure as Minnesota AG uh, attorney general that she left it to the, the grand jury, which was a passive way of basically, you know, letting the, the cops off the hook because apparently that's and that just commonly results in cops win. That's tends to be the MO for a lot of AGs. And for the, again, for the fact that they work with the police and then they feel like if they prosecute the police, then they might not get help next time when they need to prosecute a case. And the fact is that a lot of the juries, they um, they go by the whole one bad apple scenario, but they'll finish the quote, what is one bad apple spoils the bunch. And people are groomed to be like, oh, police officers are the good guys, no matter what. They, they're they here to protect and serve, when in all actuality, they're not here to protect and serve. The point is to uphold the laws. And if the laws are based in racist connotations, they can't do nothing for us. Hmm. That's true. Aside from even if even setting aside their racism, mm-hmm. personal potential racism, our system is racist. And if they do their job, that's not they're necessarily good. Yeah. So it's like, you know, my kids, I, I can tell my kids, you don't need to fear. I mean, you know, obviously I'm, mm-hmm. I'm white, but, but even setting that aside, any, any young child, it's like, you don't need to tell them to fear the cops necessarily because a kid doesn't threaten the cop and a kid doesn't threaten any, any power, you know, but it's like, I just, I just came to this realization recently. Like there was a picture of cops standing around the wall street bull. Like mm-hmm. there's a bunch of protesters on wall street. And then, but the cops were surrounding the wall street bull to protect basically, you know, it was like the symbolism of protecting the police protect the people from each other, like from criminals, whatever, as long as the elite are protected from the people. Like, it's um, like, you know, the police are between us and, and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the powerful, but we think that they're facing one way, but they're actually facing the other way. But that's and the, that's whole, and that's another thing that's that lens, the lens that you see through, like, um, like you said, where you had to tell your kids, like, you didn't have to be scared of the cops. Like, we're, we, us, as speaking as a black mother, like, I raise my kids to be fearful of the police because it's a survival tactic. And to be honest, like, a lot of the, we have never viewed the police as somebody that could be potentially there to protect us because mm. we can just right, recently in Bass River, um, Maurice Gordon, right here in Bass River, Burlington County, New Jersey. He actually wasn't under arrest. Yeah. And he was waiting for AAA or whatever. And uh, Sergeant Randall Wetzel basically offered him to wait in the police car until AAA came. Unfortunately, the AG refuses to give out too much information, but 
at this point, he wasn't under the rest. Um, Maurice wanted to get out the car. Something must have happened. And, as you know, he was sh- shot and killed. 28 years old. <sighs> and this Jeez. is right here in Burlington County, New Jersey. And and it seems like um, it's supposed to be that area. Then you have Marshall Zamore that was on the Atlantic City Expressway. The police officer said that he smelled weed and placed him under arrest, which... And he was arrested at 9 o'clock in the morning. By 11 o'clock, he was dead dead in the cell. They mm-hmm. tried to say he choked on a, a baggie of drugs that that he want, he didn't want to get he didn't want to get caught with. Mm-hmm. And what they didn't understand was Marshall Zamor was a devout Muslim. So there, mm-hmm. he doesn't do drugs. Mm-hmm. He doesn't smoke weed. He doesn't drink, do anything like that. And the one question mm-hmm. I had for that issue is they said that he had it and he he's tried to swallow. He choked on it. I've been arrested before, and I have never been arrested where I was never s- searched. So oh, how could they search- to begin with? Even if he did, even if he did, how would he have still had it? Yeah. So how would he even had it in the cell if he was searched beforehand? Back to Maurice. He was killed two days before George Floyd was. This is the Bass and River one. This is one in Bass River, New Jersey. Okay. And the thing is, he was trying to, basically, he wanted to get out of the car. And the police the police officer um, shot him and made it worse. Like, what's his own paid administrative leave? Hmm. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, I have a question regarding before. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you say, you know, totally understandably, you teach your kids to be wary of the cops. I mean, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I mean, from my perspective, yes, I am white, but my kids are 10 and 13. So I, I wonder like, you know, even Tamir 10 was, and 13, like, like at what age does 12. it? Tamir was 12. Wait, who was, wait. Tamir Rice. He was shot playing in the park with a BB gun. Less, oh. than, a, less than two seconds. Tamir Rice was 12 years old. All right. There you go. All right. That answers my question. That answers my question. Um, okay. Okay, that's depressing. Um, okay, so now we're in the middle of. It's been two, three weeks now. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe approaching three weeks, and yeah. you know, there's serious protests going on. Yes. And whether they're good or not, there are changes happening. I mean, even Trump signed an executive order, which is kind of a joke. Not even kind of a joke. It is a joke, but he has he did sign an executive order for, you know, change, you know, recommendations of changing behavior on the police force. And I sent you a thread uh, by mm-hmm. Daniel, which I'll put in the description, which there are some substantial changes happening. The, uh, you know, the officers, officers themselves were uh, the officer that killed George, Young, George Floyd was charged with, I believe, originally third degree murder. Mm-hmm. And now he's, it's been since the protest has been upgraded to second degree murder and all of the officers that were with him are now accessories to second degree murder, mm-hmm. which, you know, maybe that's not enough, but that's, that's obviously, you know, uh, it better than it originally was. So can you talk about, yeah. So let's talk about the protests themselves that you have observed. And then I want to get into like the changes that have happened because of them. And, and yeah, just take that as you will. Um, the ups- the protest I've seen is amazing um, to see so many people rallying up behind George Floyd is, a, is an amazing thing. It's also a little disheartening because why did it take George Floyd? There were so many other people murdered by the police why did it take this? Why did it take people to see somebody literally dying for nine minutes for them to take action? And then, and not too many people are speaking up about Brianna. Um, I'm a, I'm a bit skeptical about it because even though I keep hope, but the thing is, I, I love history, so I've seen this happen before. And everybody gets riled up, and then you hear these little false things like, oh, we did it, and then people will go right back to sleep. 
like like you said, the um the pseudo executive order that Trump made. It's like the executive order for recommendations doesn't recommendations doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be implanted or it's going to be inducted into the system. Um, I'm I'm hopeful, but I keep a healthy amount of skepticism. What's going on that? But I love to see. I love seeing the people coming together and marching and protesting. I'm extremely ecstatic seeing the young black kids just up and taking charge and doing doing the work. They're they're protesting. They're saying we're not taking this anymore. We're tired, and that's a beautiful thing. And to see people actually try to learn to be allies is a beautiful thing and it's not performative when you see people actually doing the work and supporting the affected group that's something beautiful that's something i i hope for but again like i said i keep um i keep a healthy amount of skepticism because i've seen this before and anybody that's been living over 30 some odd years, they've seen it before. I've seen it with Ronnie King. Oh, we can we all just get along, everybody, blah, 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 blah. And what happens? It gets quiet and Ronnie goes back to sleep. And the rest of us that are still continue to fight the work alone. And I just hope that people keep this fire and keep this feeling that they have and stick with it and keep it with them. Because there is right now there is no actual change. There's talks of change, but nothing has been implemented as yet. So you need to keep the pressure on. And I'm hoping people will still want to keep that pressure on these politicians, on our so-called leaders. Because at this point, pretty soon, you're going to have to put black people in, in America on an endangered species list. Hmm. Do you see these protests as mostly... Um, mostly black people. Do you do you see this as like you're? Are you encouraged because of black people are are you know standing up, or do you see it as even more than just blacks that are that are participating and standing up? I see more than just blacks participating, and I'm glad to see it. That's a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong; it's as great, great, but I'm more thrilled seeing the most disenfranchised was particularly black women who've been historically silenced speaking up like mm-hmm. step into the power which is a beautiful thing and then seeing other non-black folks rallying behind these people that is what i find the most hopeful that's what i love seeing that they're wielding their privilege in ways to uplift those that are continuously silenced or that's continuously killed and letting them have their moment to shine that is a beautiful that was a beautiful thing and that gives me hope i just hope it's not going to be something that's the fad or the new hashtag and then it's going to go away because even after all this is said and done these young black kids that's up and doing the work they're still going to be doing the work after the fact they're still going to need that support. And I'm glad I'm able to see it to a point where now more people are actually understanding what Black Lives Matter actually is. Okay. Uh, you said that you feel, you know, you struggle to not feel hopeless. And and I actually, you know, for a different reason, but I actually feel a pretty, on our current path, I feel we're, pretty hopeless. And I just, I don't mean racism. I mean, that's obviously a huge part of it. But I mean, like, you know, like end of species, Green New Deal, you know, climate change kind of thing, inequality, um, which racism obviously fits in there somehow. Um, I see on our current path, like looking at my little boys, the second half of their lives, mm-hmm. I think, I think there's really not much hope. Um, it doesn't mean we can't change our path. But that window of being able to change it is growing smaller and smaller. Um, what I would say is, as far as we talk about, as far as like the environmental and how race, race, um, this is what I like. Uh, I would like your listeners to understand that race intersects with everything. 
And that's why you see a lot of us talk about race and how it affects us because race affects environments. Because when they're building these um, polluting machineries, they're building it in low-income areas, which a lot of Black folks are. So all the sludge and everything comes into our areas. And when there's between um, because of the global warming and these and these storms are getting worse, it ha- impacts the lower income families, which are the poor and black and marginalized and not uh, non-black uh, people of color. It affects them a great deal. I also did work with uh, Greenpeace on um, in Houston on that because, like I said, it, it, everything intersects and race always plays. Um, a key role in everything. What and the thing is, if you're lucky enough enough to not have to worry about your race, more power to you. But for people of co- black people and people of color, it always plays a factor, no matter what. And even with political, I would love not to be political, but they made my skin color political, so I had no choice but to be political. You're on the front. I mean, you're you're affected by. You're the first, you, black people are the first affected by every bad thing, everything, environmental, economic, everything bad that, ha- healthcare, healthcare, mm-hmm. just ev- everything, education, everything bad in all of these slices of life affects the disadvantaged before it affects everybody else. And so, I would yeah, say I'd- disadvantage, not just black people, it, it disproportionately affects black people, but it does affect poor white folks as well. Sure. But, um, but the majority of poor black people, and that comes from the generational poverty that also stemmed from slavery. Right. And I, I would think, I think it's fair to say, I think, and uh, this is partially a question, but I believe that, you know, once, you know, the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed and, you know, clearly uh, it has changed, I think, from being blatantly Blacks are being suppressed, where I'm not saying that that's not happening. It obviously is. That's why we're talking. But I think there is more of an element now that it is all poor people, all non-rich people are being suppressed. It's more class. It's more it, It's more class, I believe, now than it was back during slavery. I guess it's partially a question, but that is my assessment. And the, the um. reason that I'm saying... The reason I'm saying that is, and you'll tell me that how wrong I am in a minute, but <laughs> uh, the reason that I'm saying that is, is because when you don't give people what they need, all people, mm-hmm. all people, healthcare, education, and you know, education is not just making people smarter; it is empowering them. Because when you don't give people education, then the rich people who are who fund that education, which is property taxes at the at the local level, and universities are funded by rich business people. So when you don't give people education, you are empowering rich people and you are crushing mm-hmm. not rich people. So it's not just about education. You know, free education is not just about making people smarter. It is about empowering them. And same with healthcare. Healthcare is not just about making people healthier. It's about empowering them because when they have free health care, they don't have to worry about standing up to their bosses for mm-hmm. fear of their whole family losing education for uh, of their health insurance. Yeah. So when you put this pressure on everyone, then everyone fights among themselves. And when those fights happen among the non-privileged, then again, we're back to disadvantaged communities, black and brown communities are the ones that suffer in those fights. Mm-hmm. It's honestly, it's always been a class thing because prior to slavery, there was no such thing as white people. There were Irish, there was English, there was Italian, etc. And what happened was, like the poor Irish folks, the poor Italian folks, they started noticing they had more in common with the slaves and the poor free black folks than they did with the rich white people. And basically what happened was the rich white people went to the poor black, white folks. It was like, hey, look, at look, we're on the same team. Your skin color is like mine. Don't go over there with the black folks. You're on our team. You're going to sit on the bench for a little while, but maybe one day you could be as rich as I am. Hmm. And because of capitalism, they felt, oh, well, then I'm going to be on this team. 
because there's all there was a saying that was going around with poor white folks was I may be poor, but at least I'm not black. Hmm. And and that's where the construct of white came from and black came from. And because of that, that's how it it branched off. It is very insidious. It branched off to where blacks be black and white and race became an issue of every construct in this country. And it all stemmed from keeping poor white folks from actually saying, hey, we got a lot more in common with these poor free black folks and these slaves than we do with these rich white folks. At the end of the day, which is really insidious, and I still don't understand how they some of them could fall for it. Because at the Civil War, you had the poor white folks fight fighting for slavery, and and this is a lot of things. And this is where they a lot of the alt right tried to twist and screw the history, saying, "Well, my daddy never fought the Civil War, but he didn't own slaves, but he fought for it because he fought believed for what, slavery, fought for fought the South, for, fought for the South, fought for slavery, in hopes that one day he will be rich enough to own a slave." Right. And that's where they seem to leave out. And so it always been class. Always been a class thing. But it, once the rich white folks introduced race into the mix, now all of a sudden is I'm poor but I'm not black. And which hmm. in fact was allows them to know what privilege is. I may be poor, but at least I'm not black. And if you think about the gravity of that, like I could be poor in a shack eating out the garbage, but at least I'm not black. So how bad do you think it is for black people if you have poor white folks saying this? Black people are in that situ- in that scenario, which is reality, was reality and significantly is still reality. Black people are a tool to control poor white people. That's what you're saying. It's, no, I'm not saying that black people are used as a tool to control poor white folks. What I'm saying is because this, this whole country was founded on white supremacy. Let's get that first. It founded on white supremacy and class and they were going together parallel. And the thing is, and once they convinced the poor white people that it's not about class, it's about race. That's where it diverged. And then that's where you see a lot of them don't understand when they say, about, oh, we're on the same team. They don't understand that when we're on this team, I got extra weight. While we're running on this track, I got a whole pit of snakes I got to jump over when you have a padded turf. And they don't want to acknowledge that. I, I actually don't see how that what I'm saying is wrong, that that racism seems to be a tool for the elite to preserve their elitism, to, and, to preserve their relative, much, much wealthier power, more powerful than everyone else, which includes poor whites and poor blacks. I'm, and saying, I'm not saying that you're not wrong, but what I'm saying is with this, it's not just about elites, it's to uphold elite elitism and it is itself white supremacy oh okay 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 so it's sort of both it's sort of it's sort of both and the thing is a lot of these things they um if people actually like they do the research they find out everything boils down to white supremacy and that's why i'm getting called like the angry black woman or or whatever whatever like classism is steeped white supremacy um, see, ageism is white supremacy. Um, sh- sexism is also white su- a form a form of white supremacy that branched out into people of color. And when I talk about white supremacy, I'm not just talking about white people in general, because blacks and non-black people of color can be conditioned in white supremacy as well, and they become the gar- gatekeepers for it. So like when um so when you Zerlina talk- Maxwell comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her I think uh one of the, I guess one of the most known recently gatekeepers would be like Candace Owens. 
Oh, maybe that was the name I was thinking of. Is Zerlina Maxwell another one of the same? Um, I, I think no. I, I might have been thinking about Sickle Diamond when you said that. No, I, Candace Owens, I think, is the one I'm Candace thinking of. Owens. Maybe she is. Yeah. Oh no, Candace Owens is, the, is just. She is the modern, she's the modern gatekeeper. Oh and my god! She, she is, was. She put out a long video shaming George Floyd that these protests that these protests against a police murdering a black person, which is an example of, you know, hundreds of years of systemic racism Mm -hmm. that, uh, that these protests are not against the police murdering Mm -hmm. and systemic racism. It is evangelizing or not evangelizing, Mm -hmm. making George Floyd into a, I don't know the term, like putting him up on a pedestal when he doesn't deserve to be up on a pedestal because of his, criminal history it's just despicable really despicable and the thing is, but that's the mo from for every victim from philando castilla to um tamir rice to trayvon martin whenever somebody is killed by a police officer they're automatically criminalized the, but i mean but i mean specifically in this with, uh, with, with george with yes her, with her no, but i mean i mean with her what's her name again candace, candace owens, owens. Candace Owens, as a black person, supposedly, you know, a beacon of, of uh, I don't know, racial whatever, that like as if she's a real black person when she's she is clearly there's something person. really. She is a real black person. She's just the harbinger of straight garbage dumpster juice. Um, <laughs> okay. She is, I think, I'm not going to say that before. Candace. Candace is a absolutely a real black person. And yeah. Okay. That that was not, wrong. Wrong yeah. way of saying it. But but, go ahead. But she, she is so ingrained in white supremacy and capitalism, she feels that like she needs to denigrate her own people in order to get ahead, and that in itself. And the thing is, she has an audience for it, so that's saying something. That's right. Where, and, and that and that and that audience feels feels like well a black person is saying this so clearly exactly you know right 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 and so they've and just because she basically is saying what a lot of them were too scared to say they're gonna go to candace and like oh well candace said this so it gotta be right and she's black so she knows Mm -hmm. and like no yeah, there's like, something really like, wrong. Like in the black community, like we be, we can't stand Candace, but we're not gonna allow anybody to bash her. She's like that. It's not it's not bashing her. It's bas- bashing what she is her, doing she is really disgusting. No, because there's there's things where if, if you're criticizing what she does is one thing, but I'm not saying you personally. But there's um, things like um, Dave Chappelle, for example. Like I love Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle can say. Anything about it, but he didn't have to call her a cunt. Hmm. That's what I'm saying. And the fact that black women are so disrespected anyway and dehumanized anyway in this country. Right. Yeah. Like, I'll be first to tell you, Candace ain't, Candace always ain't shit. She really ain't. Can't stand her. But she did not need to be called a cunt. And the thing is, I got to watch again, I'm not sure, because, because I think he called her a cunt, but then called Laura Ingram a bitch. So if that, Mm. If for goose is good for the game, why don't you call Laura Ingram a cunt as well? Mm. Mm. And, good point. And, I'm not, and that's the thing. I think, like, like I said, I can't stand Owen, uh, Candace Owens. I think what she does. What she uh, does is disgusting. Now, who she is is not. I don't know her personally. Yeah, we don't need to talk about who she is, but what she has done is pretty despicable. Yes. I'm not going to like say I don't know her to bash her, but I don't know her actions shows that she is dumpster juice and i will say that but i'm not gonna flat out call her <laughs> a, a or anything that would degrade or dehumanize her because at the end actually, of the day she's still human she actually you know you're a horrible human but human you're actually really you actually reminds me of parenting that you you if you want to have if you want your kids to have any success you will you will be strong against what they do but you will not you know, you are horrible. You know, you no. that's, that is, that's bad. What you did is really horrible. You, I love you, but what you did is really horrible. That's a really important distinction. And the other side of that is 
is comparison. When you compare two children, whether it's your own children or another child, uh, you know, like at school or something, you are, you are the best or you are better or you are the, you know, you're, mm-hmm. when you compare a child to another child, that inherently creates that, that obviously means the other child is not as good. Yeah. So that's what it actually reminds me of. Yeah. So like Candace, like at the end of the day, she's still a black woman and she has gone through her own personal traumas and her own forms of white supremacy and can condition just like the rest of us. And I say this to everybody, like, um, cause there's a lot of Candace Owens out there in the world. There are a lot of Ben Carson's out there in the world. And mm. at mm. the end of the day, each of them are going to eventually have what I call their black wake up call. And that goes for any non white person of color. If you set yourself too close to that five white supremacy, you're going to get burned. And that's just an absolute, it's going to happen. Whether it's two days from now, 20 years from now, it's going to happen. Okay. I want to ask you mm-hmm. can you talk about the term? Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. Okay. That itself is a false equivalence. When we say Black Lives Matter, we're not saying that other lives don't matter. And it's actually kind of disheartening that after five years, the, like this still bears to be repeated, that we're not saying that your lives don't matter as much as Black Lives. We're saying our lives matter just as much as yours do so actually you know what before before you even go on I'll, I'll actually say all lives matter to me is pretty clearly a tool to crush black lives matter that's what it seems to, like to me it's, it's a way to silence people yeah because obviously all lives matter but at this point you guys are acting like black lives don't anytime you can shoot a 12 year old in less than two seconds, his life did not matter to you. Anytime that you could kneel on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds as he's crying for his mama shows his life did not mean anything to you. Anytime you could shoot a woman while she's sleeping, her life did not matter. Anytime you will shoot a man with his child in the back seat shows that his life his wife's life, and that child's life does not matter. So when we're saying Black Lives Matter, we're saying Philando mattered. We're saying Tamir mattered. We're saying Trayvon mattered. And Trayvon was murdered by a nobody. And he still got off. So you're showing that Trayvon's life did not matter. He was somebody's child. He was somebody's best friend. He could have grew up and did amazing things for this country, but we'll never know because you snuffed his life out. Tamir could have been the next president. He could have been a CEO. He could have had a Fortune 500 company, but we'll never know because his life was snuffed out even before he became a teenager. Brianna was an EMT. She put her life on the line in a pandemic to take care of people. Her life didn't matter. And then on top of that, to arrest her her uh, partner and charge him, show that his life didn't matter. Mm. And so when we're saying Black Lives Matter, we're saying these people, we matter. Our lives matter just as much as yours. Our life should not have some type of quantifiable um, limit where yours is seen as priceless. And that's what we're saying. And when you say all lives matter, you're effectively silencing the ones that it's affecting. You're basically saying, you need to shut up right now. And this is not about you. When it's absolutely about what's going on it's absolutely about black lives because right now our lives are on the line you don't walk out that door thinking you might not come home and anybody that's a parent will understand fear my son's
show is done by RecTech. You can find RecTech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. Thank you for listening to the show. See you next time on Historically.